Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Healing Fucking Sucks. I am your host, Jackie Hall. (laughs) Today on the show, I have two very beautiful, intelligent ladies that I have been kind of stalking um, online. (laughs) I kind of can't believe that they are here. Um, actually I was very surprised when they were like, we've listened to your podcast and yeah, we'll be on the show. So, um, I'm just so excited. So let's jump into it. We have Dr. Carrie Kerr McAvoy. She's a mental health specialist with over 20 years of experience. And we have Tara Blair Ball. She is a certified relationship coach. These ladies host a podcast called Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse, and they talk all things narcissism. Um, They go into just toxic relationships in general. I have been binging them. If you haven't listened to them, go listen. They're on all platforms where you can find podcasts, and it's very informative. You guys have helped me on my healing journey, and you guys have no idea what you mean to me. So I'm just so glad you're here. Thank you so yeah. much. It means a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have celebrities on my show. Well, you guys are celebrities Ooh. in my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're going to start the podcast out like I do with all my podcasts. I'm going to ask you first, Carrie, what is your, um, the meaning of mental health to you? Mental health to me is the ability for someone to manage their own emotions and needs and desires and fears without costing the respect or the dignity of another person. It's it's knowing how to self-regulate in a way that allows you to show up and while well, you show up for other people and you show up for yourself. Nice. And you, Tara? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's, you know, psychological, social and emotional well-being. So not only how I am taking care of myself, but also how I am respecting and honoring the respect of others and, you know, their boundaries. Am I having boundaries myself and am I honoring them? And am I honoring and respecting the boundaries of others? Sort of keeping to taking care of my side of the street and not trying to get up in and change and manage and control anybody else's nice yeah i i asked this question because it's so wild to me where um it people's brains go when you ask them about mental health so that's just one of the reasons why i asked sorry guys my dog he's gonna be a part of the show his name is zeke (laughs) he is a nightmare in the best way possible but he's nosing his way through here so if you hear piggy noises it's the gremlin right here (laughs) um (laughs) he's just everybody will soon know zeke you're not gonna forget him um but yeah you know i feel like we are in a mental health crisis like globally and there's still so many different stigmas and stuff around what mental health is and people still thinking like if you are on depression meds, like you're crazy and stuff like that. And so I just really like to see where people are at with what they think mental health is. So that's the only reason why I asked that question. Mm-hmm. It's okay, a great question. Ladies, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I just think it's so hard to just today and assessing and taking care of mental health. I mean, like, how can you really have a strong and good mental health if you're struggling with poverty or 
you know, poor diet choices, or there's so many things that we don't have any control over that can impact and change our, our views of ourselves and our views of others. I found the fact that you asked the question interesting, and I've, I'm curious what other people say. I have a feeling that there are lots of different definitions of mental health that could be quite surprising, actually. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of, I guess, where, uh, well, you guys are licensed and, and doctors. And so you have like a textbook kind of knowledge of what mental health is, but for people that are not, it kind of goes all over the board with just think positive or, um, taking care of yourself, you know, it can just kind of go like all over the board really. So it just kind of gives me a viewpoint of like where you're at. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a great, it's a great question because I think one of the reasons we're in a crisis is because we can't answer that in a uniform way that there are so many variations. I was thinking, as you said that it could be somebody said, well, just be happy or be positive (laughs) or think positively. But I mean, is that really enough for us to have good mental health? Because if I'm happy and positive, but I'm gaslighting somebody else, are we really healthy? No, not really. Mm-hmm. So I think it's right. It's a, it's it's intriguing that we even maybe even globally, certainly nationally, don't understand really what good mental health is. Exactly, and that's what I want to do with this podcast. Like, I don't know if you ladies know, but I am in college. I'm working on my bachelor's right now, and I'm going to move on to my master's to be a um, a certified mental health specialist. And I want to take my podcast globally and go to different countries where mental health may not even be an option for them to help educate and see like what is going on here. Um, I'm going to be a grain of sand in the mix of all of this, but maybe it can be a start for others to join on. Yeah. Okay. So, um, let's talk narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) We are all three, uh, um, narcissistic abuse survivors. And, I know a lot about the two of you because I listen to your podcast, but my listeners may have not listened to your podcast. So tell us a little bit about your stories. Whoever wants to go first, if you guys want to talk at the same time, which like I said, ladies, we're just three ladies having some coffee today. You want me to go, Carrie? Do you want to jump in? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I... I feel like I've been around people with excessive narcissistic traits, maybe not full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, but definitely like they are high on the narcissistic spectrum since childhood. My mom has a lot of narcissistic traits, you know, the grandiosity and the gaslighting and the criticism and the delusional thinking. Um, That was absolutely a big part of my childhood. And then that's, I just continually dated drug addicts. Like I just found drug addicts really, really sexy. Like give me a bunch of men in a room and I'm going to pick the one drug addict. And I thought I had done right 
by dating and then marrying somebody who is in recovery from a drug addiction. Like at least he's not actively using. <laughs> and then, um, unfortunately I found out, uh, we, in our, the eighth year that we were together, that he'd been secretly hiding his drug use the entire time. And it also embezzled from his job. And this was a man who wouldn't even take Tylenol or ibuprofen for pain, yet he was taking Oxy on the side. And that's, I think, what's important that Carrie and I really delve into in our podcast that we'll chit chat about a little bit more is like, what is narcissistic abuse and how does it differ from other types of abuse? But that specific, the fact that there was so much duplicity and how my ex conveyed himself, um, how he presented as this, this good, clean guy, yet clearly wasn't, <laughs> and how that impacted me so much more because of that dupe. You know, I, I felt so blindsided once I found drugs in my house that how could this man who doesn't take Tylenol or ibuprofen is secretly using drugs? I just couldn't believe it. It seemed so out of left field. And then I proceeded to date another man right after that divorce that was also very high in the narcissism spectrum. And thankfully, I'm in a healthy relationship today, but it took a lot Yay. of work to get there. <laughs> so Carrie and I both have experienced um, that duping. And I think that's important for us to highlight. That is super important to highlight because I haven't opened up a lot about the relationship that I was in, the last one that like really blew my life up where I was like, come to Jesus moment. Jackie Faye fucking Hall, sit down. Um, you got to get it together. There's something going on here and like it's time to heal. <laughs> um, mine was a youth pastor, mm. you know, and yeah, the duping, the duping. Um, you know, um, I was an actress for close to 10 years and I'm like, he was a better doctor than I was. <laughs> like, <laughs> So I feel you. I feel every ounce of your pain. And just because I'm laughing, that's how I cope. I cope with mm -hmm. making jokes and laughing. So please just bear with me because I have to laugh through my shit because it's just um, a lot on me. I'm still on my healing process. I think you ladies are a lot further along than I am. <laughs> so I'm not laughing at you. I promise. No, <laughs> We it's get gonna, it. I mean, it's, it. it's, it is kind of funny, but it's only funny way after the fact. Like, it's awesome that you're yeah, laughing where you are because it took me years to be able to be like, what? Like, that was actually hysterical that I thought that, you know? But I come from like a comedic background. Uh, my family, even though it's as toxic as it is, I don't even call them my family. The blood related people that are on my ancestry.com. <laughs> um they are super toxic but uh comedy and laughing has always like just like ran in our blood so i've been able to laugh my way through a lot of pain um early on so i guess that's just a, a gift that i have okay carrie let's tell us a little bit about you yeah so like tara i didn't have the easiest childhood either so i certainly experienced a lot of um various types of abuse and, and a lot of neglect i think that was probably the biggest feature was it's severe neglect and and i got into a pretty okay marriage i, I my first husband was 
yeah, he was a little selfish and could be hard around some things, but we had a we had a trusting relationship. I knew that he, his word was his bond and that he had my back. And then he passed away um, in 2015. He passed away from cancer. It was a really short battle with a very rare form of, of cancer, and it took his life in five and a half months. And it, it just devastated me. I went from having a practice, and we were building a new house for our retirement home. We actually were... we. We were about ready to break ground, and um, in fact, I had a I had a, a spiritual moment where I, I heard, you know, depending on your perspective of spirituality, but I heard a voice tell me, "Don't break, don't break the ground, don't start the construction, and don't take the loan." And I thought, and I actually laughed and said, uh, "I'm not telling my my late husband. You're you're going to have to tell him that because there's no way I'm telling him that." And literally a week later, we had an early winter in Michigan, and the ground froze. So we couldn't break ground and that stopped the construction. Wow. And, and literally a few weeks later, we found out that he was dying of cancer. We had no clue that he was, that he was so ill. So my life blew apart. My, I was, my, I was suddenly empty nest, no job because I closed my practice to take care of him. And my last child was now out of the house and I wasn't in, in the home I'd, I'd been living with, with my family. We were in an apartment trying to get ready to move into the new house that now wasn't going to be built. And I wanted the life back that I had lost. So I ended up dating pretty quickly. And after a year of meeting a lot of different guys, it wasn't like I went with the first person I met. I think I probably met maybe 40 to 50, what I called meet and greets, you know, first dates and like, nope, mm-hmm. nope, not going to work. Nope. I met this guy that just checked all my box. I literally had a list. He checked all my boxes and I, I was never a believer in soulmates. And I thought I'd met my soulmate. I thought this was incredible. The most you know, an astonishing person I ever could meet. And a year later, we were married. And two months into the relationship, I learned on the last night of our delayed honeymoon that he had been seeing other women because one contacted me and said to me, and I think she was really angry, but she wrote to me because I'll never forget. You know, you don't forget those things. Uh, I guess the joke's not on me, but it's also on you. I've been dating your husband now for the past three months. Hmm. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So my world blew apart and I spent the next two years um, in a, in the relationship because so many things were in motion. I didn't feel like I could just stop, stop the marriage um, that I, we tried to save it. And I found out at the whole, at the end of the whole thing, when I got out and was looking backwards, that he had never been truthful the entire time, that the whole entire relationship had been a deception. That he was living a double life. In fact, there was a point I asked him near the end because he liked to kind of talk about psychological things. This guy was a smooth operator. I mean, he's a sexual predator. And so um, I think he, in fact, he liked the fact that I was a psychologist. I think, you know how serial killers get kind of bored with being a serial killer? So they take on the FBI sort of to kind of up the ante. I think that was his yeah. version of that. It was like, let's marry a psychologist or get in a relationship with a psychologist and see if I can pull one over on her. So I think that was kind of what he was doing. See, so he, he found himself fascinating, which. Yeah, know, he wanted to see arrogant. how smart he was. Yeah, exactly. So I asked him, I said, I thought this is what life looked like, that you did this. I did this. You did this. This is what a day looked like. I said, how near the truth is that? He goes, not at all. That was the degree he was living a second life with me, that what I thought was happening wasn't anywhere close to what actually was happening. That he was, he just had it completely subversive. Despite the fact that I was with him nearly all the time, he was still running a second life while he was with me. Please tell me 
how do people have the fucking time and energy to have a second life? Because I am barely doing mine. Like, yeah. what? Well, they, you know, Tara, yeah, Tara and I have talked about this, and we both were, I had never seen a person look more exhausted. He had deep, mm-hmm. dark circles under his eyes that kind of worried oh, yeah. me. And I and he, I, I I said to him, "You're really burning the candle at both ends." I'm. Really, I thought he was working too hard. <laughs> yeah, no, that wasn't the problem. He was but, just not the work yeah, you thought he just, was doing. <laughs> just yeah, not working. So yeah, it, it it is amazing to me, and even the level of duplicity to to have to keep these lies separate and running at the same time. I, I don't know how they do it. I I found that mm-hmm. he actually cast cliff notes. I had a, I made a backup of his phone accidentally because he, uh, I didn't later on, I started, I started stalking and snooping into his phone, but I had a backup before I knew anything was happening because he had a phone problem and I corrected the phone problem. And the way you corrected it was you hook it up to your computer, it created a backup and then it fixed the problem. So I found it way late into the relationship and he was actually keeping cliff notes on the other relationships so he could keep them straight. Oh my God, that's like really smart because my ex couldn't keep up with his lies. I mean, Mm -hmm. he could keep up with them for like a day or two. And then I, you know, you like people like us know we're like, okay, that one plus like this is not adding up. Like this is not math. (laughs) I don't know what kind of math this is, but it's not adding up. That is insane for you to have to go through a death of you're probably your soulmate looking yeah, it back was a now good relationship yeah it was a really good relationship he he and i were best friends so it was really painful to lose best friends our relationship was older so it was we we were working on trying to recapture the the romance we once had because when we were just the two of us we were we had no kids for seven years and then we started our family and those seven years were our best years and we were about to enter into that phase again so I felt like I was robbed of these really, I had great seven years before. Raising kids was hard. He and I you know, struggled with that. But then I was looking forward to, to he and I enjoying retirement. And then it was gone. So yeah, that was, that's been, that was painful. Just painful. The suddenness of it was painful. Um, but but it, for me, meeting somebody that was this, this um, deceptive was shocking because I, I, I thought it was just something of TV. It was something that you saw in the movies. I didn't really know that people were doing this in real life. And now that we're, especially now that Tara and I interact with the people that we do, we, this is, our story is common. This is not an unusual mm-hmm. experience. This is, a, this is un- uncomfortably common. And that's very disturbing to me. I thought, in fact, I was in the middle of it. And I know that whenever we talk to somebody, they say this, that they they think that what they're experiencing is so weird that nobody would can ever relate. And then when you hear the the same things being said, the same behaviors, the same actions, it's it's just utterly shocking. It is, and it's not surprising that someone like you that is a psychiatrist uh, that you know you got swindled. And that's just to go to show people how sneaky these narcissists are. It is I one of the number one things that I hate. People are like, well, you should have seen the red flags where you should have done this. People are like, I'm like, go read a book. Like, educate yourself on the amount of chemicals that are going through your brain that get you addicted to this person that make you just oversee everything that 
as bad that is happening. Like that's one of the reasons why I have this podcast. This stuff has been going on for hundreds of years and it's just now coming to light. And what in the past year, it's just now becoming popular. So for me, on my podcast, I want to educate people on what actual narcissism is. And I don't want people to just be like, oh, my boyfriend is an asshole, so he's a narcissist. It, like, people have taken it too far, you know? Um, we've dealt with actual narcissists. Like, we have a major trauma. Not to say that people that deal with assholes don't have trauma, but the manipulation and mind fuck that we have to deal with with thinking that the person that was going to be in our entire life is in fact non-existent is a whole different level to deal with. Now, Carrie, you said something when you were talking about your childhood and you said that there was a lot of neglect. Um, can you specify neglect? Because when people think of neglect – they think of, oh, like you were left out in the cold, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and maybe you were, maybe you were, but there's so many different forms of like subtle neglect that people don't consider neglect. Like I said, like we're just now touching base on all forms of abuse in society right now. So I would like to just talk a little bit about that. That's a great question. I don't know if I can go to the extreme subtle end of it, because I think it probably, I have a feeling that Many of us have been guilty of neglect at one time or another. I'm thinking of me raising my three sons. I know that there are periods. I know, for example, I gaslit my kids at times. I know I did that. I, I can give you examples of how I did that. And I'm sure there are times that I may have mildly neglected them. But Jay, basically, to me, it is a failure to show up. And I'd love to know what you guys think, too. But it's a failure to show up in a way that emotionally responds to a child's need in that moment. That for whatever reason, maybe it could be for innocent reasons. It could be that there has been, you're sick, you know, you have a cold or you're under the weather with the flu and you can't be there for your child. And that day you're neglecting your kid. It's in, in psychological terms, it isn't the fact that something occurs that's a problem, like that, that example of being sick. The you know, once in a while example of it, that happens. It's normal. We all do that. But what, when there's a pattern, a consistency of a, a not showing up for a child, to give an example, um, I nobody, I, I did know about menstruation and I knew what a period was. And I, I was warned that I might have pain. And certainly I was made aware of that you could take Tylenol, ibuprofen for it. But I um, sometimes it got really bad and nobody ever talked to me about the fact that maybe I needed a heating pad that maybe I could get comfort for myself. And so when I was in pain and would complain about it, I was turned away. You know, you're not dying. You're not, you're not, you're not throwing up and you're not bleeding to death. So please don't bother me. And so I would have to then go manage my own, my own discomfort, my own pain and my own anxiety. It was kind of shut down. And that, that happened repeatedly. I, there's a, there's images. I know, I know my parents didn't mean this. They both worked evening shifts, but then they, so they'd sleep in in the morning, but nobody got my sisters and I up. So we would get ourselves up and then we'd get into the refrigerator as toddlers and feed ourselves. And you have pictures, and this is back in the day where refrigerators were not safe. Kids suffocated in refrigerators. It closed and then they couldn't get, there was no way to open them. And there's pictures of us climbing into the refrigerator, getting stuff out. And it was seen as cute 
instead of seeing it as mm. as dangerous. Or I'm even thinking about there's one time my dad did this. He pulled the hood off of a car, flipped it over, put it on a chain, and then took a tractor, a regular sized tractor, and whipped us around in the yard on top of snow on top of this car, this car hood, like because it's a big sled. Well, actually, somebody could have broke their neck. So there was the, yeah. those types of things that were like we were repeatedly put in harm's way. Um, and at times I knew it. There were times that I was terrified and knew that something bad could happen. But there were other times I didn't see the danger because I wasn't old enough to know that this was not a good, not a good thing. Nobody was thinking about the possible ramifications. So it was it was that kind of pervasive. Just you know, kids were invisible. Just as long as you weren't bothering the parents, please, you know, that was a good thing. So I basically kind of funded for myself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of us can um, resonate with what you're saying. Um, did you grow up on the East Coast? Grew up in Michigan. Yeah, I grew up Michigan. in Michigan. I grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Georgia. So, and my dad was like a legit cowboy. So, the flipping the car hood over type of stuff happened like all the time. So, I totally yeah. get you know what you're saying. It just people just weren't thinking. Um, I have to, you know, tell myself, and I say it on my podcast all the time, that my parents just didn't know any better. They really didn't. Not, they were treated the exact same way. And mental health and uh, abuse was not, like, an educa- form of education for them, like, at all. So they yeah. just were winging it. They just did the best that they could. Yeah, I know so. my mom, it, you know, looking back, she's still alive. My Even my dad, before he passed away, felt bad. He would say, he would walk around and say, I was a bad dad. I was a, not a good father. And I felt really bad for him, for him feeling that way. And I know my mom would say, if I could go back, I'd do things so differently. But yeah, that's that's the challenge is how do we, it, a lot of this is generational. I mean, there's, there's research mm-hmm. going on that trauma then ends up being imprinted on our genes and gets passed down. And so there's this sort of this, carrying on of these traditions of really not of, of hyper vigilance and anxiety and you know in knowing not knowing how to show up for each other and struggle with emotional regulation and all these things and so it's it's I think that's the other thing I love the fact that we're doing this is because it's a way to break that yeah a hundred percent my mother I haven't really talked about this on the podcast but my mother had narcissistic traits when I was growing up. Um, She never had a safe space as a child to communicate anything. So, of course, she never learned how to communicate. So, if she were to get mad at me, I don't know what she did with my brother. Like, our lives were really separate and relationships were really different between her and my brother and me and her. But she would write me like a three or four page note. This is me like in middle school, high school, and I would come home and this note would be on the table and it would just be like going off about everything. And then she would proceed to go like two weeks without speaking to me and act like I did not exist in the house. And she made, would just be like fuming of like this toxic, like, chemistry just pouring out of her pores that where you were like, don't come near me. Don't talk to me. I'm not going to help you. I had such bad anxiety at an early age that looking back now, now that I'm learning how to manage my anxiety, I was like, how 
did I live back then? My anxiety was so bad because I never knew what I was going to walk into. My mom was a drug addict um, because she couldn't face I, – I think she couldn't face a lot of the stuff that – her behavior. So she turned to drugs. Um, she's not – now, my mom it's, did a, a 180. She is my saving grace. She is my best friend now. Um, she is, I mean, a completely different woman. And I love her. And like, by the, literally when my eyes open in the morning, I'm FaceTiming her because she's in Georgia. And I've seen her two times in seven years. And one of those times was for an hour. So anyways, it was tough growing up. I did not learn how to communicate at all. I was not welcomed into a uh comfortable uh like a space where I could talk about my feelings if anything was against what my mom thought or believed it was game on everything had to be a fight it was an argument it was we're like death to us part so you just I would just learn not to speak anything to her not to say anything Basically. And then my brother was opposite. My brother would just fight nonstop with her. Um, but now she's open to, you know, I can agree to disagree. And that is just so freeing now. It's like, well, I can breathe. And it's such a beautiful, it's so beautiful. You know, people say that people don't change bullshit. People change people. If they want to change, they change. Mm-hmm. So Tara... You've been sitting over there for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was thinking while Carrie was sharing, just, you know, I guess I was thinking about the difference between abuse and narcissistic abuse because both Carrie and I have absolutely, and it sounds like you too, have experienced. I mean, I was growing up, I dealt with physical, a lot of physical abuse, a lot of verbal, a lot of emotional abuse. I also dealt with that in my first marriage. But the narcissistic abuse, I think, was so much more intense and caused so much more of a trauma response than any of the other before, you know, I was, and it was, and it really impacted too that neglect. I don't think, you know, neglect is its own kind of abuse. And I absolutely experienced a lot of neglect in that first marriage because of that narcissistic abuse. You know, my ex, for example, was hiding his drug use the entire time we were together. And I, I am a recovering drug addict. I have 15 years clean. Later this month, if I stay clean, I'll have 16 years. Um, so the fact that I didn't know, thank you. <laughs> but the fact that I didn't know that I am living with an active drug addict, you know, it's very similar to, you know, Carrie's a psychologist. Of course, she should have known that she was with a narcissist. I, as a recovering drug addict, should have absolutely known I was living with an active drug addict. But that level of duplicity led to, that neglect piece that really reinforced it. For example, when my ex came home, he would often use drugs on the way home from work. So he would immediately come home, take a shower, change his clothes. So I wouldn't smell him. And if he had used drugs or whatever, and I was near him, he would, for example, like I would try to cuddle him on the couch and he would scooch away from me. So to me, that always led to me feeling emotionally neglected, but it, and encourage and reinforce his ability to hide those lies. You know, my ex didn't need to keep a cliff notes because he didn't fucking share with me. 
you know, like he didn't need to, he just, he just lied by omitting, you know? So that was his tactic of, I'm not lying if I don't tell her, you know? And he had such presented this, this sign of him being this recovering person. He sponsored other men. He held high ranking service positions, you know, encouraging other people to be in recovery. And the whole time he's secretly using drugs and there, you know, hindsight's 2020, I can absolutely look back and see, oh, I should have seen X, Y, Z. But the level of cognitive dissonance made it impossible. I had, I believed that he was this recovering person. And so when I would see that his eyes were really red, I would make excuses. I was like, oh, he must have allergies. The fact that he would sometimes have a sweet tooth. Um, I was like, oh, he must just, you know, he must just need a sweet treat or the fact that he would get constipated. This is like, I did not even realize in this until years later. I was like, that's why he would struggle with constipation. Like there are literal drugs on the market for opioid induced constipation. And that's because he was taking a lot of opioids. But I, that level of disconnect that was impossible for me to see in the moment. And this was a man who hid drugs in our house, hid drugs in our children's toys. You know, this is a person whose drug use was so prevalent. And once and I your saw children's it, I couldn't toys? It. Yeah, no joke. No joke. Oxy he... can kill a child in like seconds. Yep. Oxy, edibles, pot crumbs, whatever it might be. He was, he had been hiding stuff. And that was, that made sense to him, you know? And I, I don't know how I didn't find it before I found it. I just, I don't. You know, but I found it when it was possible for and me to be able to handle the next steps, because I think if I had been in a weaker place, I would have been like, you know, it's you know, it's better. I'm just going to use drugs with them. I absolutely know that there were weak times in my life where that would have made sense to me. But when I finally found it, that didn't make sense to me at all. And I was able to thank God. Right. My kids need at least one clean parent, you know? Well, yeah. But I mean, just for yourself in general, too. I mean, I know you put your kids before you, but like just for yourself Mm -hmm. in general, like, thank God you didn't find that stuff. I think that we all have a higher power that's looking out for us. And um, girl, you had it for sure. Because I had this, my last relationship was a, my second narcissistic relationship. So when I got into the second one and I was started seeing signs from the first one after I'd already gotten way too swindled into the situation, girl, I was like Harriet the fucking spy. I was in everything. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I was checking in shoes. I was going through closets. Like anytime I had a chance by myself at his place, like I was going through it. If I could get to his phone while he was asleep, I was in it. Like, so the fact that you had drugs hidden in your house and this went on for eight years is much like Mm -hmm. my story. And guys, if you haven't listened to not my last episode on the podcast, but the podcast before when I traveled the world with the fucking eight ball of cocaine in my bag that was planted on me. It's much like that. Like you have a higher power looking out for you. We have to like, for me, knowing that, knowing that I have a higher power looking out for me gives me moments in my day where I feel like I can breathe and relax Um, when I feel like the weight of the world is on me 
So I don't know if you guys feel like that, but girl, I need Jesus like every day. (laughs) (laughs) So I I wanted to ask you ladies. So I found myself in my relationship with my um, last um, narcissist. He was a covert narcissist. I found myself doing some shit that after I got out of it and looked back, I was like, how the hell did he talk me into doing that? Did you ladies have any of those moments? I will share mine and then we'll go down the line. (laughs) So mine, I had actually known him two years prior before we started dating. He was married, has two children, older kids. They're like in their 20s now. Um, right before COVID hit, he had been like begging me for like a long time to just go take me out to lunch or dinner or whatever. But he, like I said, he was a youth pastor. So he made this seem like, oh, you're going through a really hard time. And I just want to like come be there for you, pray for you, like type situation. I had zero interest in this dude. Okay. Let's just go ahead and say he's, I call him old man rivers. He's 13 years older than me, which age is not a thing, but my friends named him old man rivers because most of my friends are either super older than me or really younger. So we're just going to call him old man rivers. So go out to lunch with old man rivers and I'm like, so, you know, how's how's the wife? How's the kids? And he's just like, I I don't have a wife anymore. And I'm like, what? Because, like, his social media hadn't changed. So he was like, yeah, like, she said she was done raising kids. She wanted to live her life and just, like, dipped out. Like, she lives with her sister. Um, We're getting divorced. All this stuff. Cut to, like, two weeks after that, I invited him over to my house. I was dealing with the ex before him, who wasn't a narcissist, but Norman definitely had some weird shit going on with his mom. I think you guys heard about in the podcast, which I'm going to make a whole podcast about that in general, but I call him Norman because I'm pretty sure he was having sex with his mom. Anyways, <clears throat> um, <laughs> you guys are like, what? <laughs> um, but, um, so old man rivers comes over and he just never stopped coming over after that. Just kind of swindled himself in there. Love bomb me. Things literally went from A to Z in no time. And before I knew it, I was like, was like, I'm not even attracted to this dude. Like, what is like, what is going on here? And long story short, over a six month period of time, I got into his phone and found out that his wife still lives at home. This was during COVID, so it was easy to hide, right? Because I don't want my kids getting COVID. I don't want my kids around COVID. So I just, we're not going to introduce you to the kids yet type situation, which is understandable. So eventually, um, when I found out about her, I told him, you need to choose between her or me, which 
by the way, was the dumbest fucking decision. I should have just been like, you've been lying about this for six months. Scoot on out, sir. That that would have been a healthy uh, person right there. But I had already like the the chemicals. I was already addicted to that drug and I wanted him to stay in my life. So he went and supposedly had a conversation with her. I don't know if that conversation ever happened. Him and I went out of town for a week. He went and showed me where he grew up, his whole hometown spiel. And when we got back, his wife had packed and left. Mm-hmm. So she dipped out overnight. They they kept things so secret from their kids that later I would find out that they didn't even know that their parents were having problems. And like the mother just, they woke up to the mother packing her car and she literally only took bare minimum with her and left without saying anything, which makes me think what was going on there now that I, you know, looking back, like, I don't know what she went through, which honestly, I'm just going to say it out loud. The lady's a fucking bitch, so I don't really care. (laughs) And I'm not saying that because she was like the other girl. She's a fucking bitch. So, hello. I hope you're listening. I do not like her at all. And she um, neglected the kids. She has an autistic daughter that she just skirted out on. Whatever. So, he starts bringing me over to the house. And he's having me sell all of her stuff to make him money. So, I'm on offer up, like, putting all of her furniture up. I'm having people come meet over at their house. He's hiding me in his bedroom while his children are in the other part of the house. Now, his son knew about me. His son knew about me before his mother even left. But his daughter did not. Please tell me why this man talked me into, because obviously I was like staying the night there. There was no bathroom in his bedroom. This man talked me into urinating and defecating in the backyard on a regular basis to hide me from the daughter. And you know what, guys, I'm way too, I just share way too much on this podcast, but it is what it is. There was one time I accidentally maybe have, I was defecating in bags in the backyard, like Walmart bags. I might have missed the bag and got some on the concrete. And he got so angry at me and was like, why don't you just take a shit in the backyard and let me shovel it up the next morning? Like, like a dog, like a dog. Now, this is stuff that most people would only go into therapy and share because they wouldn't like, they would be too embarrassed to talk about it. But I told myself I was going to be as vulnerable as possible on this podcast because I can't be the only one that has been swindled into doing something so insane that at the time it made sense because of how these narcissists swindle and sweet talk you into doing that. I can't let my daughter find out about you right now. Her mother like just left. Like we, we can't have that happen just yet, which made sense. I get it. But now looking back, (laughs) you know, so what have you ladies have been swindled into? 
Yeah, I have a very similar story in the sense that, um, so we met in August and I felt I was in love with him by September. And I, but I, we were a long distance relationship and I wanted to see him over more continuous time. And there was like, by air, it was an hour, but it was nine hour by car, the distance between us. So I said, what if I come to your, excuse me, what if I come to your, your area for three weeks around Christmas and we can spend some of the holiday together? Wouldn't that be great? And I, and he and I even looked at Airbnbs and I made a three week reservation at an Airbnb. And he never told me that he was looking for another job. And he got, he took a job a few weeks before I was to go which meant now I had a reservation that's no good that I can't get out, that I lost the money to that reservation. But I still go ahead and go anyway. Instead, now I end up in a low, like a low bar um, kitchenette hotel room with, with, it didn't even have a closet. It, it, it had a steel bar that was used as a, for hangers. And that's where he was living out of with this one, one kind of, um, stovetop heating element for us to use for food and 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 I'm staying with him which was I'm feeling it's felt horrible and meanwhile I had this really nice place that I was supposed to stay at that I lost the money to but it gets worse he is then while I get there he's working 10 12 hours a day so he's gone all day long and I hardly see him because he gets home and he's basically exhausted so he collapses into bed and go to sleep so I'm thinking the first weekend together will be this amazing weekend we'll get to know each other better we'll hang out he comes home Thursday night and tells me hey my son just got a hold of me and wants me to travel three hours away to visit him over the weekend so I'll leave you here because I'm not going to introduce you to your son my son because we're still dating and I don't do that and I'll come back and I'll come back Sunday night. And I'm thinking, and I'm going to go through another week alone in a city that I don't know in this shabby little hotel room. After waiting all week to see you, you're going to be gone for the, I was devastated. So he has the bright idea. Why don't I go? And he just puts me up in a hotel instead in that area. So at least I'm close and I can have the car ride. I did it. I went ahead and did it. But I now looking back. He was, it was a hookup. He, he planned, I mean, he, he will deny it up and down, but it's the only thing that makes sense because he wouldn't even like, just like uh, Tara was saying about how hers moved away. Cause how dare he might, she might smell whatever on him. Oh, mine, mine wouldn't even brush his teeth, nor could I kiss him. So it was like, you know, he didn't want me to discover that he'd been around another person. So it was bizarre. And I, and yet, and yet, as I left that, I stayed the full three weeks. I should have just packed. In fact, I even packed that week and was ready to go. I should have just like said, bye, I'll see you. And then just packed up and headed home and then called the relationship off because who treats somebody like that? That's what I failed to see. I failed to see that that was such disrespect. In fact, you even said it, that he treated you like a dog. I mean, he was treating me like I was, that my sacrifice of that lost money, my sacrifice of being in this crappy place, my sacrifice of all this time waiting for him, none of that mattered. I, I wasn't a person. And, and why would I tolerate that? And yeah, looking back, I'm thinking so much would have changed if I could have taken my outrage, taken my gut reaction and said, I'm out of here. This, I don't need this shit. I'm done. But I, But like you said, you know, I, I was too invested in the relationship. I was too had too many emotions. 
And and then what he said kind of made it half made sense in a little way. And so I could kind of see a little bit of it. And then I didn't know that he was lying. It is so crazy how much we crave that toxic love bombing in the beginning and how it can just blind us for so long in a relationship because I mean, I don't know for you ladies, but for me, that's like my favorite place to be in that love bombing phase. You feel like all, all of your, especially for someone like me who has clinical depression, like all of my dopamine and all of my receptors are just like flying off and I actually feel like I'm living. So it's just so easy to be swindled into, uh, believing lies, um, or using the bathroom in someone's backyard like a dog. Like I, it's so crazy because people probably listening to this are going to be like, well, didn't you have more respect for yourself? It's not about having respect for yourself at that time. You don't, you don't see any of that. It's such an invisible demon, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Because because the the other thing that, that you haven't said, and I'm sure is true for you, it was very much true for me, is that they've been using intermittent reinforcement on you. So you have these incredible over the top positive experiences and then there's yes. a little hitch a little hitch will pop up and then if you don't go along with it they hold the whole relationship over your head like you either go along with this or we're done. They make an ultimatum. They don't mm-hmm. set a boundary. They set an ultimatum. And so you think crap, I I I'm invested. My whole heart's invested. I don't want to lose this relationship. I'm not in that place. So you capitulate. But once you even do that in a small way, then they know they're going to give in on the big ones. You know, they test you. And when you give up that control on something small, then the next thing you know, it, it's like you and I, we share these stories that are like other outside people were like, why would you put up with that? Yeah, because we'd been, we'd been in, uh, incrementally groomed to accept it. It's like brainwashing. Mm-hmm, it is. Yeah, it's, it actually, it's, actually, it's, it's not like brainwashing. It is being brainwashed. You are brainwashed. Yeah, it's, it's, um, like I said, it's an invisible devil. Like I just, now that I'm healing, I look back and I'm just like, wow, Jackie, but, but you know what? We would not be sitting here on our podcast that we have. We would not be helping, you know, thousands of people. So I don't regret that any of this happened. I, I hate that I had to go through so much pain during the relationship and then I had to deal with a different kind of pain after the relationship and you have to learn to grieve someone that is still alive but they're dead to you because that person never existed. Um, And for you, Carrie, you had already experienced an actual death. So my heart goes out to you. That That is two crazy extremes back to back. And, um, you know what? We are survivors and we are strong ass bitches is all I have to say, because for people to get through this, uh, this stuff, and it's not just women, you know, I wish more men would come out with podcasts talking about narcissistic women, because right now you really only hear women talking about it. There's a couple of men, um, that I have seen, but not to the extent that, you know, women have come out talking about it, which, um, Hello, men. Come on. We know that you've been through it too. Just be vulnerable because everybody needs to know. Tara, what was something 
you did that after you got out of it, you were like, um, what the crap? So, um, when I found drugs in my house, my twins were not even one, one years old yet. So a lot of people had suggested that I kick him out. You know, you found drugs in your house. Clearly he's a relapse drug addict. Do you need to kick him out? Um, but at the time we were seeing a couples therapist and the couples therapist suggested that, uh, that I let him stay because he wasn't snorting cocaine up his nose or driving drunk with the kids in the back. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's good advice. And so, um, I, I fucked him because clearly that was the way to stay married is that you have sex with a person who lied on, who lied to you and had drugs in your house and in your children's toys. Clearly that's the way to handle it. Um, and mind you really looking back, I'm very aware of how he in particular had really impacted my self-esteem. My twins were, um, I had, I had to work very hard to have my twins. I had to do in vitro fertilization to be able to have them. I had never been able to get pregnant before I got pregnant with IVF. And I had heard a lot of things from both him and my own mother who were very narcissistic that I wasn't a good mom. And because of that, when I found the drugs in my house and people giving me this advice that, you know, you need to kick them out, I didn't believe I could handle taking care of them by myself. And so when this one person, one person out of like probably 40 who told me to stay, that's what I latched onto you. And I was like, well, if I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay completely. So I have sex with him. I have sex with him unprotected because, you know, I had IVF to do my, with my twins. I'm not going to get pregnant. And I fucking get pregnant immediately. Wow. Yeah, wow. I immediately get pregnant. Um, and I'm with him. And um, unfortunately, I ended up miscarrying. And it's really not surprising looking back why I miscarried. I was dealing with so much stress. I'm constantly drug testing this motherfucker. I'm looking at his location every single day. I'm constantly doing this shit and going through his stuff all the time, smelling him when he gets home from work. Like I'm doing all of this stuff and it's so stressful and exhausting, but I'm trying to make him stay clean. I'm trying to be the person to make him stay clean. Well, we're together a few months. I have just miscarried. And right after the miscarriage, I start noticing um, all of these packages coming to our house. And he was buying things for his to decorate his man cave, which I should have just seen it as a red flag that a man has a man cave anyway. But he's like buying these <laughs> antique signs. Um, which are very expensive. I don't know how much you know about it, but like old Coca-Cola signs from the 1950s, all these signs, they're hundreds yeah. of dollars worth. And he's buying, he's literally buying hundreds of them to decorate this man cave that we had in our upstairs. And I kept asking him like, where are you getting this money from? Where are you getting this money from? And he's like, oh, well, I sold this one and I got the money and I'm not seeing anything coming out of our account. Well, I had, mind you, taken off time from work for maternity leave. Um, and so my income at the time I was a teacher was very much cut as just, we weren't making that much money. Um, and so I'm, we looked into refinancing our home to bring down our payment. So when the, when we're getting through with the refinancing, the people are like, oh, we need this statement for some credit card that my ex had that I'd forgotten about it. He'd gotten it right when we'd gotten married, which had been years before. And so I asked him for it and he's very evasive. He's like, I'll get it to you. And I get it to you. And I'm working. Why are you such a bitch nagging me? Blah, 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 blah. When I finally get that statement, I see these weird credits and debits on it from his job. And that's how I found out that he was embezzling from his job. Okay. So 
what he was doing is you cannot you cannot put money on a credit card that you have not previously debited. So he would debit himself a dollar and nineteen cents and then credit himself one thousand nine hundred dollars. And he was doing this randomly. So I discovered that he's embezzled. I was like, I was and I asked him, I was like, you need to explain to me what are these weird debits and credits from your job? And he goes, it is what you think it is. And I said that you're stealing from your job. And he said, yes. And the next day I filed for divorce. And the day he is served with divorce papers, I find out I'm pregnant again. And in the Ah, state that we live in. What? I find out I'm pregnant again. Because clearly I can't stop fucking the idiot. Um, the, The state that I live in, you cannot get divorced if you are pregnant. You have to wait until the child is born. Where do yeah, you it's live? It's very common. Tennessee. It's actually very common as far as child support. It's how they calculate child support. So you're not allowed to get divorced until the child is born. So I'm pregnant again. This time, I don't want to miscarry. Miscarriage is horrible. I don't want to miscarry. So I was like, I guess we're going to work it out. <laughs> you're a drug addict. It keeps lying to me. You embezzled from your job. I guess you're going to work it out because I don't want to lose this baby. <laughs> So I try, I legit try, I do everything I can to make it stress-free. I'm not arguing with him. I'm not fighting with him. I'm not tracking his location, nothing. I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. I'm just going to make this baby live because I don't want to lose another baby. Um, and regardless of how much I tried, I miscarry anyway. And so now I'm in this weird place. And mind you, this is three months after I filed for divorce. And I, now I've miscarried, so I can legally get follow through with the paperwork. And I still don't know what to do. And I, he and I are constantly bickering back and forth. It's awful. And at that time I went, um, I went on a, went to a work conference with a work colleague of mine. And this work colleague of mine was 18 years older than me, ugly as, ugly as sin. And, but the big thing from it is that he was nice to me. And I immediately started having an emotional affair with this man. And eight days after that, I left my, I finally left my ex-husband. So I call that ugly as sin man. He was like the crowbar I needed to leave that relationship. And I promptly started dating him. I loved him. We were going to get married, all this other, all this poor shit. And he was love bombing the shit out of me and lying to me about a bunch of stuff and was extremely misogynistic and just was a narcissistic narcissist in a different way. But at that time I was so vulnerable and felt so annihilated by what had happened to me that really, really, it could have been anybody. Anyone could have come in and been nice to me. And I would have been like, here, I'll have sex with you. I'll leave my husband. Please take me. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. (laughs) You know, and I ended up leaving him three months later, only after he had a explosive diarrhea in my house. So (laughs) all of that, all of that was (laughs) all of that. All of that. Okay. So all of my friends that know me, for you to end on that note, I am like a 12-year-old boy when it comes to like poop jokes. All my friends call me when they're having like bowel problems. They're just going to be like jockey. (laughs) The podcast was meant to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh. And I can tell you the whole story about the explosive diary in my house because it was like, it was horrifying. But I clearly needed that to finally leave that relationship because once I it's learned just... more about awful about him, it just was like, it was a matter of time. 
before that relationship ended. I just have to ask, like, why was like the explosive diarrhea like your <laughs> the, the line that you drew? Like, we all have like our lines that yeah, like well, we're just like we're, but yours was like explosive diarrhea. <laughs> I'm dead. I think it just combined. So the relationship already clearly had an expiration date. Like we were constantly having issues where he would just blatantly lie all the time. I had mm. been with a liar. I didn't want to be with another liar. And this particular night we had gone out to dinner and I asked him up front, why do you always lie? He goes, he told me something like, well, every time I tell the truth, it comes back to bite me in the ass. And so I knew that particular night, I was mm-hmm. like, this is not someone I can continue to have a relationship with, but I didn't really know how or when to extricate myself. So we have dinner, we come back to my house. I lived in this tiny two bedroom, two bath house that was less than a thousand square feet. And we're, we're going to watch a movie and I look over and he's sweating. He's like, I need to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> I have two bathrooms. One is right next to our living room where we are. And one is in another room. He chooses the one that's right next to our door. So when he goes to the restroom, I pause the show that we're watching and he goes to the restroom and I very, and a few minutes later, I hear like everything. And then after I hear everything, I smell everything. And mind you, like this guy is like four feet from me. Okay. And he comes out and he lives less than a mile from where I live. Less than a mile from where I live. And I say to him, I go, wow, you sound like you were really sick. And he goes, he goes, yeah, I think it must've been what we ate at dinner. Um, and I'm like, do you want to go home? Because he, again, he lives less than a mile. He's like, no, if I'm going to die, I want to die here in your arms. Which, if you're going to hear that, and it also was this, it's this moment where, you know, for example, my husband today, who's downstairs watching our littlest, if that had happened to him, I I would have, I, I love him. I'm going to take care of him. If he's ill, mm-hmm. I'm going to help take care of him. I'm not going to mm-hmm. be horrified. I'm not going to any of that. And that's what it was for me is just that recognition of like, this is not someone I truly care about. And how could I care about someone who is this misogynistic? He, for example, told me he would never be with a woman he thought was fat, that he only stayed friends with women that he found that were attractive because he hoped one day he could fuck them. This was a horrible person at his core. Like we see narcissists are, they're horrible at their core. This is not a person that I cared about because how could I? And that was just that moment of like, I am, I, I, I'm not willing to be this person that's going to take care of you and let you die in my arms. Like, get the fuck out of my house and go clean your ass. <laughs> like, get away from me. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm fucking dead. <laughs> I feel like this is going to be a two-part episode for me right now. Like, I'm just going to cut it at that, and then the rest of this is going to go on to the next week. (laughs) I was was visualizing, like, shit all over your walls. But no, the guy just had diarrhea, and you were disgusted, and you were like, okay, like, this is not the guy for me. Definitely, that he definitely did not clean. Neither did he clean his body and then (laughs) wanted to cuddle afterward. It just was horrendous in in every pace. I'm so sorry. It's horrible. It was, you know. You know what I appreciate about it, though? Because I have heard the story before. It, what, I, what I appreciate about it is that you'd been used, you know, Tara, this is one of your words that you'd used in our podcast, that 
narcissists don't see people as people. They're no more than just an iPhone. They're like, that's what you call it. They're, you're an iPhone. And you'd been treated like an iPhone for eight years. You, you were not significant. You were worth lying to. You, he was willing to jeopardize your recovery. Mm-hmm. And you've shared enough with your, about your recovery to know that that was a hell that you walked out of. And you never want to go back mm-hmm. to that place. And, and yet what I like about this story is that you looked at this person who's now, again, treating you like you're an object, that, that your discomfort yeah. didn't matter. And you're like, no, I'm not doing it again. I can already tell there's no intimacy here. And I'm not, I'm not doing this again. This guy does not care about me. If he did, mm-hmm. I would care about him. And I would care that this is happening to him. But I don't, he doesn't care about me. I don't care about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think like that's once part you... of our, our healing, you know. Yeah, you know when you start to heal from a narcissistic abusive relationship because the next person that comes along, you you like tolerate like nothing. Like when before, like we accepted like not even the bare minimum. Now we're like, I'm sorry, sir, but like this just isn't going to work out. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. In fact, it's funny because I recently was in Mexico with a friend of mine who's much younger than me, really a hot looking woman. And there was men oogling her. I literally looked around and I flipped them off. I was so pissed. It's like, she is not an object. Quit treating her like one because she's not. I'm just like, I have no, no tolerance for that kind of that behavior anymore because, because I don't, I don't, it's, it's, it's inhuman. It's wrong. It's inhuman. It is. And the the fact that you even gave narcissists the compliment of saying that they treat people like iPhones. I know people that treat their iPhones, they care about their iPhones like way more than they would even uh, me. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, you kind of gave them a compliment there but i get the analogy i get what you're saying like a hundred percent wow ladies we have been through it i had another question on here okay let's talk about healing and what it looks like from toxic or narcissistic abusive relationships because I feel like, um, you know, everybody is just like, oh, love yourself. Well, how the fuck do I do that? You know, where's where's the guideline to this? Like, does anybody have a book? <laughs> like, I'm sure there's some books, but it's it's like a, pers- like a small percentage. Uh, I felt so lost in my healing journey. I had just basically said, um, fuck it. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not going to do what I was doing before. And I was sitting around in so much just like agony and, and pain. I didn't know what to do with myself. I still am trying to figure out who I am. And on top of trying to figure out who I am and being so lost from this past relationship I was in, I'm still trying to navigate my um, depression and anxiety medication right now because it's no longer working for me. I am someone that has been around the board and medicine works for me for like two or three months and then I'm back to ground zero again. And I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, there is a root problem here. 
that I've been dealing with since childhood. So I'm having to like dig deep. Like I'm not just healing from my last relationship. Um, which by the way, I've only attracted men that my mom attracted, you know, um, feel like it was a learned behavior. My ex old man rivers was very much. So my dad, um, I mean, all the way down to the eye color, um, redneck country, which by the way, I'm not even a fan of it. Like grosses me out. Like the, the racism, um, all of that stuff that comes, I'm not saying all rednecks are racist. I'm saying this happened with this certain person. And, and my dad was one of those people that was just like, he was just ignorant. He just, he, he grew up, you know, around racism and he, he was just ignorant. Um, I don't think he really meant any harm when it came to stuff like that. He just literally did not know any better. So, and he didn't have anybody better around him to teach him. So it was what it was, but my dad died in 2009. Um, and so right now in my healing journey, I, I, I loaded everybody up on the dump truck and I just dumped them off because I don't trust myself with relationships of any kind right now. And I don't want to be taken advantage of. And until I figure out like what the fuck is going on in my life and who is going to actually be healthy for me, then I simply just don't want anybody around, you know, until then. So healing, what did it look like for you guys? Like the, the stuff that people don't talk about, like, what was it like, like a week after, a month after? Like, how did you feel? Did you feel completely lost like I did? Did you have depression? Um, or were you suffering with other stuff like I am, like clinical depression and uh, generalized anxiety on top of all this stuff? And how did you navigate through it? Well, my story, it didn't get better. It got worse, but it also, in a way, served as a great distraction for me. So how the relationship ended, because I was, um, one of the other really stupid things that I did that I didn't know, and, and if I was to do over it again, I would massively do it very, very differently. But I started a business with my ex, and I, I put in the capital, but shared the power and admin power and cap and the money fiduciary power. I shared it all meaning I made him 50-50 partner so he could take 50% of it if we would be split it wrong. So I didn't want that to happen because it was my capital. I wanted it back out. I felt trapped. So I felt very, very trapped in that relationship. I was, so I was looking for an out. And I also felt he was dangerous. I could sense that this guy was meant me harm. And my gut was screaming something bad was going to happen to me, that my I was physically in harm harm's way as this person. So I felt like I couldn't move wrong because it might cost me my life. And it certainly was going to cost me my money. Um, so I started to really pray a lot, actually. I was desperate because I couldn't see any out at all. And I, the day that I kind of woke up, there was a day I woke up and I remember he was treating me terrible and wasn't calling me names, but he was just unleashing with on me about how stupid I was and how I never thought things through. And this is why things go wrong. He was just unleashing on a decision that I had made that he didn't like in a way I'd never seen him do this before. And I remember looking at him and I, I thought to myself, I would never be okay for someone to treat one of my sons like this. Why? 
then is it okay for someone to treat me like this? So I, I woke up that day. And, and as I was kind of having this big, huge, like, aha moment, um, I felt, I felt that I, I, so I could feel something was moving, that things were moving. And that evening, I got a phone call from my youngest son that my oldest son was showing very odd behavior, very serious medical odd behavior. And we were on a vacation and I needed to come home. It was, he was gravely ill and he needed to come home. And I could feel that this was the door. That if I came home, left the country I was living in because I was out of the country and moved back to the United States, that it was going to shift the relationship and that it was going to help end it. So I get home and I find out that my oldest son has been diagnosed with leukemia. And he was gravely ill. And he was going to require me being there as part of his care team for at least a year. So that meant I was going to have to move internationally and move to a city that I had no relationships with outside of my son's. But I could, I could feel that this was the door that I needed to leave. And sure enough, my ex left a couple of weeks later and he fled back to the country that was his original country. So here I am now, alone in a new country with no support. Um, I had two, what I carried out of the other country was two luggage. I had two large bag suitcases. That's all I had to my name. Um, I, but I, and I had some, uh, some enough money to be okay independently for a little while. But I was trying to like deal with him on the company so I could get the, my assets out of it. And uh, yeah, and then he, yeah, then we negotiated and he agreed to divorce me and we were able to, I got to leverage it and I got the money out. But, but my focus was for the next six months, my son's health. So that, so that's what, for me, when I think of that period, I think of that where I was literally not knowing if he was going to live. And the, he ended up in ICU a couple of times where, you know, they were, about, they were about ready to vent him. That's how, how very ill he was. Wow. And uh, so it was, it was hard, but I, I appreciate, as awful as this is, I appreciate the focus because I think if I had just been in a new city with no focus and my whole life, again, blown out, you know, feeling devastated like I did after being widowed, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I would have survived because that period was bad. I didn't get depressed and I was seeing a therapist. But I just remember that the pain was so high that I could hardly be in my own skin. So it's like I said, as, as uncomfortable and awful it was to have a son who was battling for his life, I had a focus, you know, and that helped yeah. because then I was like going to the hospital instead of sitting home wondering why, why does this person not love me? What am I going to do next? And is anybody ever going to love me again? You know, so that was at least it was something, but it's, it's terrible. I mean, Coming out of that with that trauma bond, I know that people are like, well, what is that? What? It's 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 so it's so um, overwhelmingly it's an powerful. It is, it is, and it, so you're devastated. I mean, you're. I felt like this this relationship hollowed me out. I felt like I wasn't mm -hmm. a real. Per I felt dead. I felt dead from it. Yeah, you feel like a just a, like a shell of your of yeah. yourself. When yeah. you come so out, what I did was in, in addition to focusing on my son, trying to help him survive was I started writing. And so I wrote all the time. I started blogging. That's how I ran into Tara. Her and I were blogging on the same site together. Uh, I became aware of her because she was like, I felt like when I met Tara, like, oh, she's so big. You know, she was had the audience I'd love to have as a writer. Um, but I, I but I wrote a book. I wrote a memoir called Love You More. And that was for me, that was at first, I wrote nine edits of it. So it, the first version, first few versions was 
I hate him. This bad person did this terrible shit. This is what he did to me. Which, who wants to read that? Because anybody was like, I don't know why you stayed with him because he's so awful. I was like, oh, well, I didn't include the good parts. I just, I just ratted him out. That's what I did. But, uh, but now it tells you the, like, a love story. And then it tells you how a love story turns into a nightmare. But, but yeah, that's, I think spending two years writing that, helped heal me a lot. So that's one thing I do tell people, journal, journal, right? Because one of the things that happened was I started seeing through the lies. Like that story I told you about the, the hotel room, that's in the book. Yeah. And when I wrote it, it's like, he saw somebody, he cheated that weekend. That, that little fucker, he set me up and he, he left, he was willing to leave me after spending a week alone to go see somebody else when he was like, this was for us to get to know each other, to see if we have a relationship. It was, it was the writing that allowed me to see through the deception. And it really brought me a lot of clarity and helped break the confusion that so many of us have. Yeah, I agree. Journaling has helped me a lot, even if it's just me writing, fuck you, <laughs> because you know, we want to write those like aggressive, like text messages that are like five miles long. And it has, I, I did that enough. And I was like, okay, Jackie, like you have a problem here. <laughs> like we got to stop. Um, but I was like, how do I stop myself? Because I'm so angry and I don't have an outlet that yes, journaling has helped me a lot. And if you were to read my journal, it it would probably be pretty comedic because some of the pages just say, fuck you on it. But it's better than sending those text messages. It is. It is. What did a healing look like for you, Tara? So my healing really, really didn't start until I left my diarrhea, my explosive diarrhea at um, – <laughs> Because, you know, that was a temporary, um, that was like a, it just really postponed the inevitable. Like I was a new person. I could sort of pretend and, and latch onto a fantasy. There were still absolutely times during that relationship where that person literally picked me off, off the floor. Like I was just hysterically sobbing. And a lot of what I, my grief and recovery from that relationship looked like is giving up the dream of having and raising kids, raising kids with the person I had them with, like this yeah. dream of what a family should look like for my children and feeling like I'd failed my children by leaving their dad. And so when I finally did leave the di explosive diarrhea X, I just was constantly sad all the time. Like I had to carry sunglasses with me everywhere I went because I might start crying in a grocery store or a park if I was seeing families together. and. I really felt like it would never stop. Um, and for a long time, that's what it was, is I just was crying all of the time. And so depression, absolutely. But to me, it just seemed beyond that. Um, because it wasn't just grieving a person. I really didn't miss my ex. I really, once I left that relationship, I was, I very much did not miss that person I was with. I didn't miss how that relationship made me feel but I missed the dreams that I had made up around that relationship and what it would mean for me in the future. And that's what I struggled with the most. Um, so a lot of it was, I felt like between when I finally started feeling it and felt like I had moved through it, it was just so much grief. It was grief. And then trying to distract myself from the grief, you know, I would 
have these periods where I'd be getting on Tinder really obsessively and I'm chit-chatting guys and these guys, you know, it was this temporary, like they tell me I was pretty, which my ex Mm -hmm. very rarely did, but it would just be that little blip of like, oh, someone told me I was pretty. Okay. I'm better for this five seconds. And then (laughs) back to crying and I couldn't ever escape it. And that's grief in general for me is really, really just difficult to let myself feel. And I didn't want to feel it. So I was constantly trying to run away from it. And I was working with a therapist at the time who suggested I schedule containment, which Carrie and I have talked about on our podcast where Carrie has a great name for it, make a date with pain. Um, But I started scheduling containment, which is like I would schedule an hour once a week where I would just give myself that opportunity to, to just cry if I needed to cry or feel whatever I needed to feel. And I would journal. And I also use writing a lot. I journaled a lot. I too wrote a memoir during that time. I don't have it published anymore because I just, you know, I've got kids that I don't want them to know specifically what their mom and dad participated in until they're older and can be in a mm-hmm. space to developmentally handle that. But yeah, um, at that time, the writing was really, really helpful for me and just sort of giving my own perspective and being being more realistic of it and having space and time away from it. It is like withdrawal from a drug addiction because it's like my mind got clear. I could see it more realistically. I started to put the dots between things and I just was able to see things a lot more clearly. And I worked with a therapist. Then I started working with a coach and started evaluating what I wanted for my next steps in life. And I I started dating. And then I just got tired of dating. Like it just was kind of exhausting. And then I was going to end date. I was going to take a break from it. I was like, I'm just, this is just too much. I'm it's, I, I was actually creating and sticking to standards. And like Carrie said, it was just like a lot of meet and greets. Like, you know, you don't meet my standards. Like I'm not getting a good feeling from this. Like I'm, I'm just done. And then I met my now husband and, um, I've gotten the opportunity to create a really cool and, and wonderful life with him. And the thing I love the most about it is that I already felt like I was in a good place when I met him, that it's not that he fixed me or that I fixed him or anything like that. Like I actually felt like I was, I really cared for myself. And I think the big, the big thing a lot of us don't talk about when we talk about healing ourselves or learning how to love ourselves is it's not really a feeling as so much as an action. You know, I was not practicing self-love when I was letting someone call me a bitch on a regular basis or when I was letting someone mistreat me or objectify me or or all of that. I wasn't practicing love for myself by allowing that. And too often I practiced self-abuse. You know, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't exercise. I wouldn't do the things that I felt meaningful or or enjoyment. And I just really thought one day I would just feel love for myself. And I really have to see it as very... It has to be an intentional action of if I love myself, I let myself sit down at a table and eat. I take walks. I do do hobbies and interests that I enjoy. I leave conversations that are disrespectful of me. And that's that's how I practice and continue to practice self-love, that it's not just something I feel it, it is an ongoing action that I have to be intentional about. Really crazy how different all of our stories are, how different the dynamics are, but how similar they still are in a sense. I live in California by myself. 
um, when I left LA and moved to Bakersfield, where I am now, I actually moved here for my ex because he moved back home from LA to a town about an hour and a half from here. So I already didn't have anybody else. So like he was like all that I had, not to mention my mental health that, you know, it, my depression and anxiety has been like an issue at the time. I didn't realize how bad he was escalating, like all those issues for me, but healing for me was so different because I was so isolated and I don't have my mom in person. Like sometimes I just need that like physical hug from, you know, someone close to me that feels familiar and I don't have that. And it has been a real struggle, ladies. Like, I don't know how to explain the immense loneliness that I have felt and been through. And I've literally had to scrape myself up off the floor. I have not had the energy to do my dishes and I'm someone who keeps my house clean. I stay on top of all of my stuff on my laundry and stuff. I'm looking, there's laundry piled up. Somehow now my dog is now peeing on everything and everything I have in my house is covered in dog pee. And I am in four college classes right now and I'm working and I started this podcast And my floors are filthy. And I'm just like, I don't know how to catch up. I feel like I am failing at everything I'm doing right now. And some days it's been better than others. But some days, literally, if I can just get myself up out of bed and to work and get my homework done at the end of the night, then that's good for me. It has to be good for me right now until I can figure out how to get my energy back. And I feel like this is something that it takes time. It's no one can give me a magic pill. Um, I wish they did. I wish there was like a magic eraser, but like there's not. And I just want, I had went on my Facebook and I was like, I really feel like I'm failing, like I said, like at all this stuff. And the outpouring of love that people came through and said, you need to give yourself grace, Jackie. Like you already have a lot on your plate. Uh, If you were a healthy like human, you're trying to heal on top of all of this. So I, without even knowing, started uh, giving myself, you know, an hour here or there to, you know, sit in my shit and and feel it. And sometimes if it's too overwhelming, then I just, I won't do it because I, like, I can't. Um, some days I feel stronger than others and I can push through and come to reality in my head of some of the stuff that had happened, especially like through my childhood too. Like I said, I'm, I'm healing from like a bucket load of shit right now. Generation of just trauma. And so I just like to remind everybody that it looks different for everyone. And it's okay if you're not feeling yourself. It takes time. 
to get back to normal. And there's not a, there's no like time frame that someone's going to say, okay, in six weeks, you're going to be better. It's different for everyone. Um, one thing that I am for sure not doing is going into another relationship because I know for me, like, like I said, I love that addiction feeling of like the love bombing phase for me running into another relationship right now would quote unquote, so solve all of my problems. But when that one blows up, I'm going to be right back where I'm at right now. So it's it's a it's it's hard life um dealing from a narcissist in general but when you've grown up and been raised around people either with narcissistic narcissistic traits or an abuse of any kind or trauma of any kind it's it's hard it's hard um we have to be grateful and learn to enjoy the and I want to say moments because sometimes they're only a few minutes of life where uh, life feels easy or you have a minute to breathe because when you're healing sometimes you don't feel like you have that at all. I mean I've had days where I've had like three four panic attacks in a day and so it can feel pretty rough depressing, lonely. Um, I have prayed at night so many nights to not wake up the next day. I don't know if you ladies ever felt like that, but I have like so many times, like, please just don't let me wake up in the morning and take my dogs with me. Like, (laughs) um, but I think it's so important for people to be, you know, vulnerable And for us to share these stories so that everyone can see that we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. I would like for you ladies to just tell everybody where they can share or or come find you on social media. And then you ladies can go. Yeah. um, If you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook at Tara.RelationshipCoach or my website, TaraRelationshipCoach.com. Okay. Yeah. And I'm Carrie McAvoy, PhD everywhere. And then we have Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse together. Yes. And I will link all of your information in the comments of the podcast. I appreciate you ladies and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.